Hello, welcome to the Deep and Durable Learning Podcast. This is the show for anyone who's struggled with the superficiality and short half-life of what passes for education. I'm Mike Gray, and I'm transitioning from nearly 45 years as a professor in higher education into this role of podcast host. This show is not primarily about bemoaning the state of education. Instead, I'll offer a positive, practical vision of how your learning can become both deep and durable. Welcome to Epistemology Part 2, Coming Out of the Fog. In the last podcast, which I playfully titled Confusion Says, we explored the substantial differences between data, information, and knowledge. Simply put, data must be processed to yield information, and information must be interpreted by a personal knower. Knowledge is intrinsically personal. That's the conclusion we came to in the last podcast. I want to drill down further today, and the big question for today is, what does it mean to know something? Last time around, in the previous podcast, we tried to undercut the cultural stereotype that collecting information and being a knowledgeable individual were the same thing. Well, I I hope I made the case that they're not, that being informed is not necessarily to be knowledgeable. But that was a somewhat negative stance, what knowledge is not. Today, we're talking about in detail, more detail, what it does mean positively to know something. So we've recognized that knowledge takes information and therefore data into account. Knowledge is built on information and data, but it interprets them and then, and this is important, uses them. Knowledge answers a how-to question. That's the essence of knowledge. Knowledge takes data and information and answers a how-to question. This includes practical questions like, how do I use a router to mold wood? And broad theoretical questions like, how could the U.S. have avoided nation-building in Afghanistan? Or, how can income inequality be overcome in a democratic capitalist republic? A short classical definition is that knowledge is justifiable belief. Justifiable belief. Frankly, this is held for two millennia. It's only in the postmodern era of your truth and my truth that it has begun to be disputed. As a scientist, I'll stick with the view that there is a pre-existent 
reality external to me that I and all scientists and lay people are trying to know. I would readily admit this reality cannot be perfectly known by humans, but it can be approximated based on what I'm trying to do with the reality. What do I want to accomplish with the, the reality that I do grasp? The standard view of epistemology is often called the justified true belief model. And that's what we're going to be exploring for the next few minutes. Justified true belief model. In this model, a person can be said to know when and only when certain conditions are met. Let me put myself in here and uh, I'll make a proposition because that propositional statements are the way in which we convey knowledge. I said last in the last podcast that knowledge is personal, so let me put myself in here and say, Mike Gray knows that, and here's what I know, one of the things I know. For every infectious agent, there exists a dose that can overcome prior immunity. Oh, where'd that one come from? Well, I'm a microbiologist, sorry. And the whole business of breakthrough infections is uh, currently dominating the news cycle. What I'm saying is uh, I'm not surprised by breakthrough infections that whether immunity is naturally acquired from getting COVID-19 or whether it's due to receiving a vaccine, there's always been an expectation that the immune system, whether primed by an actual infection or by vaccines, would not be absolutely bulletproof. So the proposition again, Mike Gray knows that, here's the proposition, for every infectious agent, you could say including SARS-CoV-2, there exists a dose that can overcome prior immunity. So that's a statement of knowledge. I say that I know that. That's a claim of factuality. Now, there's more involved if, in fact, there's actual knowledge going on. I can be said to know that about a dose breaking through and causing infection if, number one, I believe it to be true. In other words, I can't just be repeating something and I'm not sure if it's true. If, I, if I'm not sure that it's true, then I don't know that it's true. That's, that's pretty obvious. So, again, the model is justified true belief. And so far, we've made a propositional statement, I have, and I say, I meet criterion one because I believe, that's one element, it to be true, that's another element. 
And for many people, it stops right there. But the justified true belief model of knowledge says there's a number two, a number two criterion that must be met if the proposition isn't, is actual, if it's knowledge, if it's factual. And the second attribute is it's knowledge if I not only believe it to be true, but number two, that I'm justified in believing it is true. I'm justified in believing it's true. Now, these days, as long as I believe it's true, and who are you to challenge me is a, is a very common street-level approach to all of this. But in the classic model of knowledge, there is another criterion, and that's justification. Justification is the big word here. Justification involves satisfying not just myself, but others who know more than I do and actually knew it before I came to know. The Oxford English Dictionary puts it this way, justification is the action of or result of showing something to be just, right, or reasonable. It is vindication, end of quote. Vindication. I've been vindicated, which sounds judicial. So justification is the important criterion that we're leaving out in common formulations of knowledge in the postmodern era. Justification requires a systematic interaction of my truth claims with the truth claims of others that results in others being persuaded if they're in opposition, and me being vindicated, or if they don't need to be persuaded, that we're all as a group vindicated because we all had basically the same kind of perception and we went through the same basic justification. Of course, there's always a possibility in going through or attempting justification that others are right and I am wrong. So the use of reason and evidence to persuade is in view here in this classic model of what it means to know. Now, there was a time when this idea of using reason and evidence to persuade dispassionate discourse, um, being a good listener, using the tools of rhetoric and evidence were commonly in view, uh, never as thoroughly as we'd like to believe, however. Uh, I'm reminded of an obituary I read recently of the liberal Michigan Senator Carl Levin. He served in the U.S. Senate for 36 years. His obituary included these lines. His scholarly approach to legislating earned him the deep respect of colleagues 
who didn't share his progressive philosophy. They had respect for him, even though they didn't share his progressive philosophy. The rate Republican Senator John McCain said of Levin in 2014 upon his retirement, Levin's retirement from the Senate, McCain said, we all listen to him and we listen closest to him on the occasions when we disagree with him. You don't need me to point out the vast gulf between the rigorous but fair-minded disputation of the Levin-McCain era, at least at its best, and the rude, coarse, arrogant, shallow, and dismissive posturing of opposing tribes who will give no quarter to each other that's characteristic of today. Justification has fallen in the streets, and we're in the era where everyone's views, except mine, even and especially probably those of the experts, are just opinions. Evidence can be dismissed as fake facts, and logic and reason are replaced with crude ad hominem attacks on my opponent. That's a horrible place to be, but that's where we are as a society. So, knowledge is justifiable belief, and justification is the part that's being skipped these days, because it's difficult, and it may cause my viewpoint to be discredited, which means I should abandon it. Knowledge requires what one researcher called cognitive capacity. So knowledge requires a justification, and the justification includes an attribute called cognitive capacity. So what in the world is that? Is it intelligence? Well, it might be, but for many, many probably most of the important issues, it's not native intelligence, it's not IQ that's referred to by cognitive capacity. Instead, um, it's probably a combination of two things. The first is that the individual who's making a claim to knowledge has an appropriately developed framework of foundational concepts from which to reason. They've developed a framework of foundational ideas, concepts, from which they're reasoning. That's cognitive capacity. And another attribute, then, is the uh, intent and discipline to use those foundational concepts in a logical and reasonable fashion and to appeal to evidence. So knowledge then requires this disposition that I know I'm going to be required to justify what I believe if anybody else is going to be expected to accept that I know what I'm talking about. 
I submit that most of the misinformation about the COVID-19 pandemic is generated by individuals who lack the necessary conceptual framework to know. Self-taught individuals are usually wildly off the mark because they don't engage in disciplined thinking that emanates from sound reasoning using the uh, concepts that are the basis for justifying or invalidating a line of thought. Some of the very common ways in which this lack of cognitive capacity shows up is when you have untrained individuals saying they're doing their own research. They do their own research. They don't trust other people's research. They're going to do their own research. Well, if they had the cognitive tools, including the foundational concepts, perhaps, but that's the issue here. And I submit that very few people who uh, are spreading misinformation are capable of reading peer-reviewed scientific literature. Where does that come from? Is that bias against these individuals? It isn't. It is the real is based on the reality of uh, having taught in higher education for nearly forty-five years in the sciences, and having been through the process of teaching students who are gifted in the sciences how to read and interpret and critique peer-reviewed literature. It is not a simple process. It is not like reading Reader's Digest. It is not captured by uh, cherry-picking a few sentences from the paper. So um, that's part of the problem. People who claim to do their own research don't know what the process looks like, nor are they equipped with the foundational concepts to make the argument from the literature. These individuals often also criticize data collection and processing when they don't have any real knowledge of how data are collected and processed, that they simply assume the worst because the data don't add up in a direction that, uh, that they are sympathetic with. Data collection and processing uh, involves a system put together by uh, computer scientists, information technologists, and mathematicians. Likewise, we find people, lay people without training, engaging in uh, criticism of the way statistics are used and making their own statistical arguments. And again, um, a course in statistics is part of becoming a scientist, and such courses reveal there's a steep learning curve to be able to understand how statistics is appropriately applied and misappropriately used. 
There, in fact, is a classic 1950 book called How to Lie with Statistics. And uh, the tongue-in-cheek book showed how uh, people use pseudo-statistical approaches to uh, misrepresent things. So on some level, this current misrepresentation by untrained individuals is not uh, unique in the history of humanity. So how do you address these self-taught individuals who are usually wildly off the mark? And uh, the answer, let's go back to Esther Meek, the PhD epistemologist, who says this, I'm quoting, over the course of a learning, she's talking about learning about something that you're, you don't know about, over the course of a learning, we must first entrust ourselves to the tutelage of an authority who teaches us how to see and what to look for. It involves challenging previous expectations of the way things ought to be. Close quotes. In other words, it intrinsically involves challenging uh, the way we think it ought to work. So, these individuals are self-taught, so there have been no mentors involved. Mentors help us to know what to look for. Uh, there is an education in uh, being able to see what's right under your nose, um, being able to um, look at data and detect patterns. So it's not automatic. Um, data sets are not full of brute facts. Um, the software that approaches putting these things together involves algorithms that uh, have been developed by people who are mathematically and statistically trained. So mentors help us to know what to look for, and they challenge our expectations. Well, in my experience with uh, the purveyors of misinformation, um, whatever mentors they have uh, are people who are actually not themselves qualified to speak to the issue. And when I say the need for mentors, if we're going to achieve knowledge, the need for mentors is not the same thing as most people are doing, and that is choosing a prepackaged position. Uh, most people today who um, represent themselves as informed they choose a position and then they warp their choice of evidence and reasoning to fit the position. They don't reason themselves into the position. They choose one based on their expectations. Non-mainstream mentors might be onto something, but only somebody who has mainstream competence is equipped to know whether these individuals might be legitimately criticizing the mainstream viewpoint. 
the way to, we could put this is uh, you have to earn the right to dissent by showing you have mainstream competence and then showing significant points of disagreement that you can, and we're back to this again, justify. So where what are we left with? Well, we've explored here knowledge as justified true belief. And let me move toward the end of the podcast here by quoting one more time epistemologist Esther Meek in her book, Longing to Know. She says, quote, recognizing that knowing is a skill also restores hope about ourselves. Knowing calls for us to develop our latent abilities, to embrace the struggle that it takes to pursue truth. So the good news is you can learn how to learn. In fact, that's what the resources at Deep and Durable Learning are designed for. That's been the passion of my life, and that's why I'm talking to you today. Ignorance is a problem that can be solved if you're not also arrogant. Intellectual humility is the prerequisite for learning. Join me in two weeks when we will explore the information fixation of most educational systems, K through to college. Information is not knowledge. Information alone does not lead to transformation. On the other hand, knowledge is power. Contact me at deepanddurable.com with comments or to sign up for my bi-weekly blog.